0: Hi, we're back. I'm Ellen Wyoming Deloy. I'm here with my colleague, Nathan Baptiste, and we're doing a mini series on the show for a few weeks here on um, kind of the world of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Nathan is an educator and trainer in the equity, diversity, inclusion space tied in as well with mindfulness. He and I have the opportunity to work together on um, some projects, which is a great joy. And I thought, how fun would it be because we always get in the best conversations to do like a little mini series because there are so many concepts that we're continually covering or conversing about as we're working with others and organizations that we thought it'd be really helpful. If people could just have access to the insights that I feel like we get to have and are fortunate to dive into on a fairly frequent basis. Nathan, more so than me, even because he's really doing this work and my work is so much more in the coaching realm. And Nathan is really in the education and training space on this, which is really great. Um, So last week we covered what is equity, diversity and inclusion. And as we came together this week, Nathan and I were talking and he proposed, and I think it's great as usual. Um, I'm looking at my notes. Um, structural elements and structural pieces that actually play into equity, diversity, and inclusion. And how do we really create more equity, right? So last week was a lot about definitions and kind of exploring like the themes of what it means. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I would go back to the first one before coming here, um, just to have a little bit more of a foundation, but keep listening otherwise. And um, today we're going to go through at least three areas. We're going to look at Um, The value of intersectionality, right? And Nathan and I will talk through that and define what that really is. Um, And then there are um, working within organizations, right? With the structures, sometimes there can be a fairly colorblind approach. Like we don't see color or we don't see this or that. And we'll talk about the um, the disadvantages of a colorblind approach, um, and not only the disadvantages of like why it's actually harmful. And then um, for our third um, place, we'll round around to looking at structural discrimination, removing it from the interpersonal or the personal into the structures that we live inside of. And We touched on this ever so briefly last week, and so it's an opportunity here to expand on that a little bit further. You're listening to the Inner Light with Ellen podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Wyoming Deloy. I'm a coach in Portland, Oregon, who works with people across the U.S. and occasionally the world. I help people to transition from where they are to where they want to be, removing limiting beliefs, barriers, and imposter syndrome along the way. On this show, I bring you conversations with leaders in wellness, spirituality, healing, mindfulness, and more. We also dive into themes around intuition, equity, racial justice, and what it means to be living here in the 21st century. I'm excited to bring you each episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And if you love the show, leave a five-star review so others can find us. If you want to learn more about my work and what I do, go to EllenWyomingDeloy.com. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. Nathan, welcome back. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Ellen. Uh, glad to be in conversation with you again.
0: Yeah. Um, so let's let's dive in. What is gosh, let's start with intersectionality because what is that?
1: Right. Yeah, so intersectionality uh, as in building from from your intro, um, when we're looking at this larger goal, Right, in organizations and teams uh, around how do we create more equity? Um, Intersectionality is an important concept for us to think about in moving towards that goal. And so, intersectionality uh, refers to the different identities, social identities that we show up in, right, that intersect with each other by gender, by race, by age, ability, status, uh, religion could be body type um, and, and, and others, right? Other social identity marks, social, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, um, nationality, language, and the list goes on. Um, and it's so important to name it though, because when we are aware of which identities we're showing up in and which ones we're not showing up in, Um, that can help us be more equitable in our decision-making processes if we have that intention. But if we're not aware of it, we're not talking about it, it's not part of our um, thinking process for decision-making, especially in decisions that impact others, um, oftentimes we're going to think we've come up with great solutions for issues that impact people or services that we're providing, and we've totally neglected entire populations because it's not designed with them in mind.
0: Are there any key ways that you've noticed working in organizations that there are a few kind of, I don't know if blatant is the right word for it, but like a few key ways where this is like unintentionally happening um, in a pretty common way. And I think I'll caveat this that, um, so Nathan and I are working together with educational institutions, and I know that Nathan works with across a lot of different sort of um Uh, bodies, right? So government, social services, education, you have a pretty deep background um, with the kinds of groups you work with. And they're all in different places on on their journeys, Um, some ready to dive in and really get deep because they've done a lot of work previously and some who are really working to bring a bigger group up to the same page. So I'm wondering kind of as you as you start to work with some of these groups, if you've noticed around intersectionality that there are a few key things that you notice quickly that would be helpful to kind of convey as people are maybe looking at their own environment.
1: Sure. Um, so you know, one that comes to mind kind of immediately and is tangible and, and easy to, to capture regardless of what field folks are in is language, right? And how are we presenting information, right? In what language? And depending on the populations in the region, is that serving everybody potentially that we could be serving, right? So that's just one concrete example of when leadership or when decision makers are all of the same language per se, say English in the United States as being the dominant language um, and and most uh, widely used language. Uh, we may or may not take for granted that the services we deliver are going to be in that language. And so I see in organizations that I work with, sometimes that's an issue because it's not necessarily the first language of everyone that's working in the organization. And so that can create barriers to access to information. We're in the information age. Everything, you know, really hinges around who has what information to get ahead and to have opportunities. So that's that's one concrete example the other the other kind of illustration that i like to use in trainings is what's now probably a very famous uh dei training um picture that shows equality versus equity right Mm -hmm. and it's usually a baseball diamond there's different versions of it um and there's people in the stands and then there's people outside of a fence and in the equality picture, they're showing people who are behind the fence and they each get one box, right? Because they each got an equal amount of resources to look over the fence. The problem is that the fence is not the same height. Well, there's actually a lot more problems. Than well, that. no,
0: the fence is the same height. The people are different heights and or abilities, right?
1: Well, there's different versions oh, of okay. it. Oh, okay. I one have a different I-
0: picture in my head. <laughs>
1: The version that I like to use just to provoke more of these questions and the conversations: the fence is actually um, raising up higher as uh, you go one side of the fence, it's more and, like a real lower, ball. <laughs> and lower for one of the other, uh, towards the other side, which makes it a little bit more accessible in terms of being able to see over it for one person on one box on that lower side of the fence, but then impossible to see over. On the other side of the fence, um, you can probably Google if you want to have a real visual image for folks that are listening. You could probably Google DEI, D- diversity, baseball, diamond, equality versus equity, or equality versus equity
0: baseball yeah. picture. Yeah.
1: Um, and and I bring this up as an example because. A lot of times, and then it's comparing equality to equity. So equality is all the boxes are the same as a resource to see over the fence in the equality picture. And then in the equity picture, where the fence is higher, um, the people get more boxes so they can still see over the fence. Obviously, well, maybe not obvious, but it's an imperfect solution because the fence is still there, right? And, and what's the level of decision making in how we're resolving these issues, But I bring it up as an example because if if we're talking about ability and and physical mobility in particular, um, those boxes might work for folks that don't, that can use them, but there's going to be some folks that those boxes aren't going to be useful to because of physical mobility limitations, whether that's by age or or a disability, physical disability. Um, And so that solution is not using an equity lens, actually, even though it's, the, it's supposed to be the equity picture. And
0: it's bypassing intersectionality. Like all humans here got a few boxes, but we didn't look at the intersection of their abilities or maybe just functionally their height, right? We can go to all kinds of discrete identity measures in that example.
1: Right, and and I like to talk about this with in terms of intersectionality, in terms of who is making these decisions. Because- yeah. Had there there been an intersection of, of some of these identities, it's not guaranteed that that will be caught those types of service those types of solutions that aren't serving some populations. But more likely, if you have lived experience um, with a, an identity and barriers that that identity is facing conditions that they're facing, they're going to come up with solutions that are more effective. Yeah. Um, or if you're applying an equity lens, you don't have to be of that identity to come up with something. Um, But hopefully you're listening to the voices of folks who are so that you also are taking co-responsibility where you have decision making authority um, by thinking about intersectionality, even if they're not your own intersections of identity.
0: And I know this is, I'm going to say something here that is potentially just like a leap into an entirely different category, And but I want to bridge it really briefly around people's fear about trying to be more equitable and not taking any action until they know they're going to do it perfectly or until they're going to do it just right because they don't want to continue to perpetuate harm. And I can understand the intent behind wanting to get it right, but it's um, the perfectionism of it continues to perpetuate harm in the meantime. And also like I could see somebody going, well, we don't have every single voice at the table and I'm going to try to apply an equity lens and like look through as much access to intersectionality and listening to others that I can. And here's the thing, you're probably still not going to get it a hundred percent. And I don't know Like I don't know if it exists that we can ever get it to be 100% because it's a dialogue that has to be open and continuously able to adapt and iterate, right? And it's like building equity in my point of view, so I'd love to hear what you think about this, is about the relationship and the communication that opens up that wasn't there before. That's a Mm -hmm. big part of it. Building equity is about building the space to have the conversations where people can express the needs that they have and ask for them to be met without retaliation, punishment, further oppression, and and have a solution move forward that serves both parties so that we can work together going forward. It's not about like, I'm going to trade my power and give you power, but now I don't have any power, right? It's not really that. It's not that binary. It's about opening the conversation. It's not going to be perfect, but that we're going to have the relationship and start moving forward to try together is what's going to create better outcomes it's about progress, right? It's about moving forward. It's not about perfection. It's like a total business cliche, right? Progress, not perfection. Just take a leap. You can do it. But it applies here.
1: Yeah, I, I like that. I like the, the slogan of direction over perfection because it is such a, a hindrance or a burden in doing equity work um, when people freeze in their tracks because of fear of making a mistake, doing it wrong um and ultimately who does that most burden it doesn't most burden the person that's making the mistake it most burdens the folks that are on the receiving end of inequities right and so yes we're going to make mistakes we just have to own that we have to own the impacts that we have right and despite our good intentions presumably um and I would also you know i agree with everything you just said in terms of it it really is about how do we create that space and that dialogue and relationships like equity work is relationship work um but part of that relationship work and i think where it's an important thing to underscore is equity work is also power dynamic work right it's not just about i'm gonna do a a a satisfaction survey to see how everyone feels about the way I'm making decisions. And then I'll adjust accordingly and still hoard all the power. It's also, I mean, it it is about listening, but it's more than that. It's also about how are we amplifying the voices of folks to make decisions and be empowered to co-create the realities that, that, you know, in, in relationship to services being provided in relationship to how an organization runs and culture and not just, having to have everything filtered through me or through whoever the executive director is or the board or so on and so forth. So it is looking at how are we diversifying our representation at all levels and power. And it's also how are we um, doing this in relationships, so that it's not uh, this binary of me versus them or this zero sum kind of mentality, which is kind of a false uh, a false dynamic. It doesn't have to be that way. That's the power dynamic that got us into these deep disparities. It's not how we get out of them.
0: Okay. Can you go a little deeper into that? I think I've seen this happen in organizations I've worked with, the zero-sum fear that doing this is going to leave me out in the cold. And I want you to just, can you unpack that a little deeper about how it's the way we got into the game, but it's not the way we get out of the game?
1: Yeah, well, and I think it's a great um, connection, too, to what is structural discrimination.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Because how we got into these deep inequities that are entrenched in our society Mm -hmm. is understanding that it's not just interpersonal Mm -hmm. bias, it's not just individual bigotry or um, prejudice for one group over another, that, you know, anyone may have bias, anyone may have prejudices, it's bigger than that, right? Racism, sexism, the, the isms that fall under the umbrella of the idea of oppression is that it also incorporates a structural level of inequity. So it's not just our attitudes and our and our interactions with each other as individuals, it's also how do the systems um, keep repeatedly and persistently devaluing certain groups and lives and opportunities for those groups uh, while privileging and preferencing other groups, you know, whether that's being male, uh, as normalized, or white, uh, able-bodied, heterosexual, so on and so forth. Um, these identity groups get centered, and programs and services and recruitment designs and on and on promotions are all framed with them as the prototype or as the standard, right? As these groups. And it doesn't necessarily happen consciously, right? Because it's been so ingrained over centuries of really dividing with great intention in, in, in different, some contemporary and a lot, you know, certainly in colonial periods um, of, of, well, you know, using slavery, using genocide, using... Um, oppression and keeping women from being able to vote, right? All of these different ways that certain groups have been said, you are a second class citizen here. And this is your place, quote unquote, for for a lot of different groups in society. Well, that doesn't just disappear because of civil rights bills, right? That's entrenched in, in, in how we're socialized. And it, and it, it changes gradually. But it's still something that we have to check because they it still lives on. There's plenty of research to support this in unconscious bias that's oriented around social group preference, right? Intergroup bias. And so how does this play out structurally? And why is it important to talk about? If we care about equity, we need to understand that it's not just our personal beliefs, but it's then what decisions are we making? So there's different levels of how discrimination plays out right we we certainly can internalize it and then in our behavior we're going to make choices that will preference some groups over others because oh well this group is familiar this group is trustworthy or this group is more qualified or this group is x y and z greater qualities because i'm familiar with this group and that's often what happens. With
0: and I even within some of the words you just used, more qualified has more qualities. It's like, but upon the metrics created by whom that were then adopted by what, right? It's like, they're all human created. They're all human generated. And there are some that have been extremely pervasive through the 400 plus years of the United States, at least, right? Um, development that... It, I don't mean to interrupt, but you're just making me think of something that I've I've been hearing lately because I'm read we're reading Laura Ingalls Wilder books with our kids right now, right? And they're they're very eye opening when you look when you read them with the lens that we are talking about um, for many reasons. Um, But one of the phrases that I keep hearing, and I mean these books were written in the 40s, even though they're about her life in like the late 1800s, um, but. A number of times through the series of books, I hear the phrase, I'm free, over 21, and white. And, you know, as early as 1940, people were saying this without, like, any issue, right? Because they knew that if you were those three things you were set because the, the table was set for you. I actually heard my, cause my dad was born in the forties. My dad is white American, right? He's Polish American. Um, I heard him say this in my childhood. He would say, I'm over 21. I'm free, but he would just say, actually, I'm not in jail. <laughs> he would say it that way, but then he would also say, and I'm white, so it's fine. Like I'm, I, there's nothing holding me back from anything. And I, it was always striking to me. I was like, you're talking to your half Asian child. Like, what does that mean? You know, I was always like, kind of like, this is really funny. And I mean, it was pervasive in some people's homes, probably not just mine through the eighties and the nineties. And who knows how much farther, like I moved out in the nineties. Right. So I don't know about that after that. And, um, it just makes me realize about like how entrenched it is within the structure, within the culture, just to right. get a personal experience on what you're making me think of.
1: Thank you for that. that the <laughs> illustrations, I think, you know, bring it alive even more. And what it reminds me of, too, is in this example of, of whiteness being front and center and valued more highly. I mean, it, there's a there's a skin cream industry internationally. Oh, right? God. yeah. And it's and it's not for all different colors. I mean, it, it is. But where the money is at is in whitening. Right. And yes. that industry internationally across the globe. Uh, is growing. It's not decreasing. It's growing in value as an industry. Um, so the, the message of whitening leads to more privilege or more beauty or more opportunity or all the things that you were just talking about um, is still very much alive today, right? And, and, and it's and within
0: it cultures that are not white also. Yeah. It's yeah. like
1: entrenched. It's internalized. And it goes yeah. back to colonization. It goes back to very intentional periods of time where colonizers be it from uh Britain or or other European nations
0: Portugal um, Netherlands Spain anywhere right
1: yeah and then and then within the United States once the United States was formed as well and then within all of the Americas of course um the dominating white populations were using race as a wedge right they were saying White folks get X, Y, and Z privilege. It was actually constitutionalized. It was actually said if you are white in the United States, 17, I think it was Act of 1790. Mm-hmm. I have to go back and, and double check the exact piece of it. Um, but right to citizenship was labeled by whiteness. And so there are court cases in which people of color from different countries had in, in our history had tried to get citizenship by claiming whiteness. That I was remember this with yeah.
0: Japanese immigrants saying, we are just as white as the white people. You yep. should allow me to have citizenship. I remember that was probably in the 30s or 40s, but I remember this. Yeah, maybe earlier than that. My ears and are so, off.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, but I, as well, I don't have all the dates, but, um, but, but we can look it up. And, um, and so it comes back to what is structural discrimination? You know, that's historical roots of it. But today, those legacies of who is centered and who is considered normal, and not just by race, by gender, by ability, status, and so forth, um, that plays out in Hollywood, that plays out in, who's in, 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 in social services, that plays out in, and it's not always by design, but it's by what we've normalized, what we've internalized. And so those structural barriers of who's qualified, that's a big one right? Because it becomes internalized. It plays out in our decision-making processes and recruitment and promotions and who gets what opportunities in the workplace. Um, And then it shows up in institutions and who actually is representing in leadership, right? there's. I think I might've mentioned in our last conversation, there's resume studies where the resumes are identical, but based on gender and race or even nationality, um, some folks are given privilege when they're thought to be White male, uh, English speaking, and so forth, versus identities of people of color, women, and, and, and other identities that aren't being centered. Right? Even though the, the in the studies the resumes are otherwise identical besides those social identifiers, so these disparities create structural disparities, right? And it's, so it's not just at this interpersonal level, and it's and that's so important to name, and that often is understood, but not necessarily talked about or named or and much less addressed to really create more equitable systems.
0: And Nathan, I feel like this is a great segue into the harm of colorblindness as a policy within an organization.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my thought there and, and this this term of colorblindness is not the literal colorblindness, but um, it's a phrase that's been used in reference to folks who say, I don't see color, yeah. right? Or, or I don't see whatever the, the difference is by gender. I just see people, right? That's kind of the, the common expression or the common attitude that some folks will take. And, you know, in assuming the best of intentions, um, you know, the spirit of that would be, I want to treat everybody equally, right? So what's wrong with that? And and there's nothing wrong with that intention, right? But, the intention and the impact is really different when we don't see how there are structural barriers in place. And so we don't recognize the different impacts based on race and gender and pay gaps and so forth. And we just say, go out and compete and it's pretending essentially, or or allowing ourselves to remain ignorant that we're not dealing with equal opportunities, right? So we can't we can't treat people equally because we don't need the equal same thing, right? One size doesn't fit all. The the baseball analogy of the boxes, we don't all need boxes. And we, and we certainly don't all need the same boxes. <laughs> um, so how are we, when we're getting away from a colorblind orientation, um, that's moving towards intersectionality? That's moving towards understanding that not only do we have intersecting identities with different interests and needs, we're also facing different barriers based on how society privileges some identities over others and who they consider normal and who they consider less than normal, right? Second class. And so how do we start to unpack where that's happening, how decisions are being made um, so that we can really get to the root of the same goal of wanting equal outcomes, but we get that, you know, outcomes in terms of everybody being happy, everybody having the resources that they need to, to not just survive, but to thrive, right? And, and to have wellness, right? We want equality in that respect, but the approach of equal opportunity for all ne- tends to neglect uh, the inequities and in the conditions that we're facing. So how do we start to shift that
0: yeah. And this conversation, this part might have to go into a follow-up, but it makes when we keep saying equal opportunity, I keep thinking of the phrase on, you know, applications for jobs where this is an equal opportunity employer, we're not going to discriminate um based on like race, class, gender, sexuality, place of origin, um, kind of stuff. But then when you get into the culture of the organization, the culture of the organization doesn't necessarily include Have equity or diversity for all of the things. And so it's exactly the situation I think many organizations are struggling with right now. The intent is there. I would like to be an equal opportunity employer. I want to treat all my employees the same. I want them to have um, all the same resources and abilities to thrive. And they're kind of, they don't say that they're colorblind, right? No one's walking around going, because I think a lot of people get, like, it's not helpful to pretend you don't see it, but then they don't know what to do to build the equity, right? So we're just kind of circling back here, right? Kind of back to the beginning, what's it really mean to build equity? And it's around communication and relationships and expanding the decision-making. Um, there are a lot of pieces we've covered so far as a, an early start for understanding how it could be done, but the work of it is very hard, which is why it takes so long and people get afraid. Um, I'm not sure if I have a question here. I'm just kind of thinking about it in terms of like the practical day-to-day. Is there anything coming up that you're thinking of now as like a next step or a next segue?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I wanna piggyback on the topic of equal opportunity, right, employers and whatnot um, and the Equal Opportunity Commission. You know, that came out of responding to segregation right? Okay, and explicit discrimination that was saying you don't get to vote. You don't get to participate in society because you're from this background. You're yeah, from this your background.
0: school's over here and it has the books from 10 years ago. Right.
1: And so that was necessary. What I like to say now is that it's it's still necessary, unfortunately, but it's insufficient. It's necessary, but it's insufficient. We need to do more. We need to have a higher bar.
0: It was the progress and now we're ready for the next step.
1: (laughs) And we still need it. Don't get me wrong. We still need to have laws to prevent the most extreme discrimination from happening or to try to have an intervention there legally is, is still very much alive and necessary, but it's still insufficient. And so, and what I mean by that is we can do more, we can do so much more. Like you said, you can have an equal opportunity law meaning you can't discriminate based on gender race sexual orientation so forth um doesn't mean it's not going to happen but it's great that there's a law there that says you're not allowed to do that and if it's found to be happening and there's lots of issues with how that's determined and the, even the bar for determining that is um unreasonable some somewhat i think argue i certainly would um because there, and and even folks within the investigation commissions argue that yeah, there's so yeah. many cases that are not being processed because we don't have the bandwidth to do it. Right. Um, so that in and of itself is is so limited.
0: It's, oh, another podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> right. Maybe another series.
1: <laughs> but what is more to your question or to the to this exploration of how do we create more equity is organizations not waiting for the federal government to put. You know, the, the lowest possible bar yeah. of, you know, we can't be explicitly discriminatory towards different groups of people and saying, how do we become a racial equity, intersectional equity oriented organization, right? How does that core to who we are? And there's not, you know, I'm not, you know, spoiler alert, I'm not going to offer and I don't think anyone is going to offer one recipe. Right. That's going to work for folks. But right. but it also doesn't mean that it's just throw your arms up and just figure it out. There are best practices. There are key questions to be asking, right? The, what's known as an equity lens, a racial equity lens, which is being explicit about race and race disparities in how services are provided, in how people are experiencing an organization and what they're doing. Um, it, there, it's race explicit not race exclusive right so that means also race we don't live in a vacuum of just our race of course our race is intersecting again going back to intersectionality with our gender with our ability uh, with our age with our uh, sexual orientation and so on and so forth and so where are there compounding disparities based on how our identities are being treated in combination, right? And there tends to be, and the reason why the the argument for and the case for using a racial equity lens that is in itself intersectional in its approach, the reason for it is because there tends to be compounding disparities when we account for race explicitly. And when we don't do that, uh, we tend to negate the barriers that are very racial, racially specific, right? That are disproportionately impacting people of color, black folks, indigenous folks uh, to a greater degree than if we're just looking at gender, right? If we talk about the big app, for example, that's that's a concrete example of that.
0: You're making me think of like a racial equity lens being like this really amazing superhero pair of glasses that you can put on if you're in a video game and all of the sudden, like the invisible things that you don't deal with day-to-day all the time are suddenly made really apparent. And I wish it were as cool as like having glasses that could suddenly reveal all of the emotional, structural, cultural barriers that we put up in front of each other. Because here's the thing we're just people and we're imperfect and at a very core level, super far away. I don't want to simplify this too much, but I am going to just for a second, we came from tribes, like in some form or fashion. And so we naturally had bias because of survival mechanisms ages and ages and ages ago. And then what we have today is like, we are, especially in immigrant receiving nations that were also formed through colonial genocide, like an incredible mixing pot of difference that, um, one group sort of took charge for a number of many centuries and we don't see even, I don't like, I have learned to see so much through this kind of work to understand and unpack so that I could be making progress both in my personal life and my professional life. And it just feels Um, Like, you know, people's like, oh, racial racial equity lens. What does that mean? And it's like if you if you have a hard time grappling with it, just pretend it's a pair of superhero glasses you put on when you're playing a really great like metaverse, like virtual reality game that immediately shows you the barriers that different people faced based on their intersectionalities not because everyone is a bad person, not because everyone is terrible, but just because that's what we've done as humans out of habit, out of culture, out of learning, out of the soup that we live inside of. And oh my gosh, when we put the glasses on, we suddenly have the ability to make very concrete choices, very intentional choices for going, that's not cool. Let's work on removing that barrier. And it's going to take time. It's going to be progress. It's not going to be perfect. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to realize that's attached to something weird. You didn't know it was attached to, but well, let's go experiment. Getting curious about it. This is like the crux of it.
1: I love that. I love that analogy, the imagery of the goggles. And it is, I mean, it's essentially that, it's essentially that concept of, seeing things that you couldn't see before, understanding things, recognizing things that weren't apparent before. And it's not just for white folks. It's not just for men. It's for all of us because we're all in intersecting identities and some of them uh, are more centered in a society than others, right, typically. And so how are we taking responsibility, right? If if I were to kind of give my... Quick recap and like, okay, but what do I do with this information? <laughs> uh, response: um, I would
0: <laughs> always the question, "What do I do with this?"
1: <laughs> there's, a of, there's a lot of information, uh, kind of a big information dump, but what do we do with this? So, one, if we care about equity, if we want to see folks of all different backgrounds benefiting equally, right at the end of the day, or at the end of the services that we've provided in our lives or in our organizations we want to see everybody thriving, right? Um, the, The first piece perhaps is if we have that intention, right? If that's our goal, what is our commitment, right? What are we going to do about it? And so first I would say it's, whether that's making a statement to yourself or publicly to an organization, but whatever that is, it's making a sincere commitment to saying equity and equitable outcomes for folks and meeting people's needs is a priority to us because it often is not, it's often rhetoric, but it's not actually a priority. So let's just be honest with ourselves and as an organization, and as some organizations are, and and some are not, um, and some are in terms of, yes, we do prioritize this. And some are honest and saying, no, we don't prioritize this. It's like, to me, that's great. Like, let us know where you stand. And let yourself know where you stand so that you can direct your resources where you want to. But if it is a priority, name it as a priority. Make it part of the mission of the organization. Make you it part fund of it. Yeah, fund it. Resources. You have to
0: fund it also. Before... <laughs>
1: right, go ahead. Tell us.
0: That's it. I'm just saying, like, you can name it. You can prioritize it. But if you don't fund it, it's still rhetoric. That's, well, that's all exactly. I was going to say.
1: Your budget is a value statement. Yes. Right? An organization's budget and a person's individual budget is a value saying we vote with our wallets and our organizations also declare what they care about the most and what they prioritize by what they invest in. So if we only have a little diversity committee and that's not even a core responsibility of job duties, that lets us know that we're not in an organization that prioritizes equity, right? Mm -hmm. More of a side project. And so equity doesn't work as a side project. It really doesn't. It, 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 you can be curious and start somewhere, of course, and it doesn't have to start with, you're gonna overhaul the entire organization from the beginning. But it is with the intention of, yes, the trajectory of this work means we're embedding it in our core values, we're embedding it in our mission, and we're embedding it in how we measure success in our program goals, in our evaluations, in our compensation. Right. If if this is a core value, it's a commitment to exploring what that means, and there's so much learning along the way to get there. But at least there's a vision and there is a direction uh, for where to go. So I'd start there, and of course, there's more conversations to follow
0: that. Totally, and I feel like this is probably about where this should wrap. But I want to say one thing: just you just said it right at the end. There's more learning to happen, and I think that again, that is the a key framework and. I might just bludgeon this forever, like it's progress, it's not perfection, doing something now and moving forward and making mistakes and learning from those mistakes and alleviating harm and building relationships and communication and tending to the impact when mistakes are made, truly tending to the impacts that happen are how this is really going to move forward and it is not an easy load and it's this is this is how we bridge it takes great inner work as well as structural work to get this done and this is where like more of my work fits in i work with so many people on the inner work right and you do too within the scope of equity diversity and inclusion specifically which is just my favorite thing. So yes. Um but learning is continual. To kind of get back to what I wanted to highlight from you. Um and that we are on a learning journey and it's not that anyone in any organization is going to be the expert. Like please stray from trying to pin it on an expert. Everyone has the opportunity to be building expertise in their experience. And I think that is a way that we also can grow and learn and next time we talk what should we talk about
1: (laughs) i I love it i love i saw what you did there i like that (laughs) we
0: haven't had any plans about talking about this at all i swear
1: (laughs) (laughs) perfect segue for our next conversation about mindfulness right and how we take ownership individually and collectively around how we're showing up to advance equity work
0: yeah So stay tuned. I hope that everyone is enjoying these conversations between Nathan and I. I learn every single time I speak with Nathan. I love it. And um, yeah, thank you for listening. Nathan, anything before we go? Uh,
1: No, just gratitude to you for kind of ushering the conversation and helping it uh, take shape and and give it direction.
0: See you next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in today and listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And if you love the show, leave a five-star review so others can find us. To learn more about my work and what I do, go to EllenWyomingDeloy.com. Thanks. See you next time.